you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 9. Luke in chapter 9. We are, uh, we're going to read verses 27 through 43a, okay? So 27, which if you open your Bible, it's probably tucked there up in the previous scene. I told you last week we were going to start with that one, so we're going to start with 27, and then we're going to read through to 43a, the first half of 43, but you should see in your copy of God's Word that they've already naturally kind of divided that verse in half for us. Um, so that's what we'll do uh, this morning. It'll be behind me on the screen of my translation. Follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, starting in verse 27. The Holy Spirit says, But I tell you truly, it's Jesus speaking, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. Verse 37, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out and convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him be. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty. Amen. It's God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. When Catholic Cardinal de Medici commissioned young artist Raphael to paint a portrayal of one of the Bible's most famous scenes, I don't think he was expecting what he received four years later. What Cardinal de Medici, who would later become Pope Clement VII, asked for was a large rendition of the transfiguration of Christ to hang above the altar of the Norbonne Cathedral in France. What he received was that and more. And what is considered one of the greatest paintings of the Renaissance, and for some, one of the greatest paintings in the history of the world, which we're going to put on the screen for you, Raphael depicted not just the transfiguration of Christ, illumined at the top half of the picture, but the disciples struggling to exorcise a demon from a small boy in the shadowy darkness of the bottom half, which took place in the very next scene in Luke's gospel. 
We don't know what De Medici thought about the painting when he saw it for the first time, and whatever he thought, he couldn't tell Raphael, since Raphael died before completing the painting. The task was left to one of his understudies to complete. But one can't escape the fact that what Raphael did in this painting is more profound than maybe even he realized at the time. The painting shows two realms. The top is heavenly, at the bottom, the earthly. In the heavenly realm, at the top, is light. At the bottom, in the earthly, is darkness. At the top are three figures, Jesus, you see him in the middle, Elijah and Moses. And the mood is clearly calm and serene. But at the bottom, the disciples, except for Peter and the sons of Zebedee, are there. And they seem to be in a panic, a confusion, and agitation, and suffering in this scene. Jesus' eyes on the top half are toward heaven. Elijah and Moses' eyes are on Jesus. Peter tries to look at Jesus. You see him there, but the brilliance coming from the Lord is too much to bear. So he inadvertently covers his eyes. Meanwhile, those in the bottom of the picture look to one another. The one of the disciples points towards Jesus, knowing that the remedy for their inability to heal the poor boy is the one who is on the mountain radiating light. And Jesus' posture is one of both humility to divine will and a foreshadowing of the posture he will take on the cross as a suffering one. This incredible 500-year-old painting profoundly pictures for us something that Luke is trying to tell us about the person and the deeds of Jesus. He wants us to know that not only is Jesus the heaven-sent Christ who radiates holy light and is the fulfillment of the hopes of Moses and Elijah, but he's also a humble Savior who enters into dark places to touch the lives of real people. Raphael and Luke before him show us that the Jesus of the heavenly mountain is also the Jesus who bends down in the muck and the mire where sinners are and tells them how much they're loved. These scenes are telling us that Jesus, the pre-existent creator, is also the suffering servant. And there's no contradiction in those two truths. And this is what we'll explore in these two seemingly unrelated scenes in our time together this morning. Okay, There's two points. And in each of the two points, we'll have one additional sub-point. And I'll, I'll just give them to you right away. Okay, So in the first point, we'll see who Jesus is. And in our second point, what Jesus will do. And in each point, we'll consider what this means for you. Okay? So who Jesus is and what his identity means for you, what Jesus will do, and what his deeds mean for you. Okay? You tracking with me? That makes sense? I was afraid it'd be too confusing. Um, But you're smart people, yes? So uh, point number one. Who is Jesus? I first want to draw your attention to verse 27, which is placed in the previous scene that we looked at last week. After Jesus tells uh, us that, after Jesus tells us that to be his disciple, one must die daily and take up their cross and deny themselves and follow him. He gives the reason why, yes, and promises vindication for this is what we saw last week, for those who follow him and who live and die for him, and a warning to those who would hold on to their lives and are ashamed of the gospel. Well, then Jesus offers this curious statement in verse 27. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What on earth does that mean? What's he referring to? You know, there's speculation, of course, many suggestions. Could he be referring to Pentecost? Could he be referring to his resurrection? 
Could he be referring to the end of the age? Well, those won't work because all the disciples are dead. Yes? Now? Before Jesus' second coming. All of them were alive except for Judas when Jesus resurrected and at Pentecost. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's referring to what happens in the next scene starting in verse 28, which is the transfiguration. Some of them, Peter, James, and John, see the kingdom of God as Jesus takes them up the mountain and is thus transfigured. These three alone see the curtain peeled back and Jesus in his glory. Not all of them, but some of them get to see the kingdom of God about a week after the words of verse 27, just as Jesus promised. So, we see Jesus went up with them to pray. And remember what we've said before. When Luke tells us that Jesus went to pray, he's cluing us in that a significant event is about to happen. We've seen it very recently, right? Jesus prayed before asking the disciples who they think he is. And here he is praying before he meets with Elijah and Moses on the mountain. Now we're told that as he was praying, his appearance of his face was altered and his clothing become dazzling White. In Mark's version of this story, he says that Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew says Jesus' face shined like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. So you can see from all these different gospel accounts that these authors, they're trying to stretch the lengths of human language to try to come up with some way to describe for us what's really indescribable. And Matthew and Mark use this word, transfigured, which is the Greek word metamorpho, from whence we get our English word metamorphosis, to try to describe what happened to Jesus here. Jesus was changed. His appearance was different than before. He was transfigured before his disciples' very eyes in ways too glorious for words. But it wasn't as if we must not picture him being turned into like another being or any such thing. He, he changed, but it wasn't into something else. It was showing who he really was. It wasn't like in Harry Potter. You guys remember, right? All you big Harry Potter fans. They had a class called Transfiguration, where, where they learned how to turn one thing into something completely different, like turning people into frog, or a person's head into the head of a shark, or a lamp into a cupcake, and things like this. What's happening is the disciples, not like that, are getting a glimpse of the kingdom and seeing Jesus for who he really is on the inside. I want you to notice the order. What changes first? Jesus' face begins to shine first. Then his clothes become dazzling white. The glory of Jesus came from his own person, from inside of him, and that altered the very clothes that he was wearing. Moses and Elijah, we see, appeared in the glory, but not their own glory, but Jesus' glory. You know, we're meant to think of several things from the Old Testament in this scene. While they're on this mountain, Moses was on a mountain. When he entered into a cloud to meet Yahweh and receive the law. And do you remember what Exodus 34 says when Moses came down the mountain about his face? It was shining and the people were afraid to come near him because he was glowing like he was hanging out in a radioactive waste dump or something. Well, why was Moses' face shining? Was it because his own glory? No, it was because the Lord passed in front of him. See, in other words, Moses received his light from somewhere else. Yahweh's glory was so overpowering that it caused Moses to, Moses to literally glow. But Moses didn't have glory in himself, did he? 
It was borrowed glory. But now we have Jesus here on another mountain, and where does Jesus' glory come from? Himself. Whereas Moses was like the moon, having no light of his own, only reflecting what comes from the sun. We're about to see that Jesus is the sun that radiates light and holiness and majesty. He is the glory of God in a person. He didn't just mirror or imitate the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He is, as the Nicene Creed articulated 1,700 years ago, he is light of light. He is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. What's happening in the transfiguration is the veil is being peeled back so that we could have an even fuller answer to the questions Jesus posed in the last chapter regarding his identity. People were speculating about Jesus, remember? Is he John the Baptist, come back from the dead? Is he Elijah or one of the other prophets like Moses? And we see here standing with Jesus are Elijah and Moses, so he can't be that Jesus is one of them resurrected. But that he is a wholly unique person in time and space. He is light from light. He is true God of true God. He is greater than any other prophet before him, and he is greater than anyone since because he's not just a prophet, he is God himself. He doesn't radiate light. He is light. He doesn't procure holiness. He is holiness. He isn't merely reflecting divine glory. He is divine glory. As Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by a word of his power. So what happens in verse 33? Peter speaks up. Can you imagine Peter putting his foot in his mouth? Master, it is good that we are here. You think... Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And do you notice Luke (laughs) interjects at this point, doesn't he? He says, guys, Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. That is essentially what Luke tells us. What is Peter suggesting here? Peter wants to prolong what's happening. He wants Elijah and Moses to depart. He wants to build three tabernacles for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses so they can stay a while. Peter thinks, okay, this, is the, this must be the end. <laughs> this is the end of the age. Let's stay up here forever. And he still misunderstood who Jesus was. Peter still thinks that there is equality. Do you see? He thinks there's equality between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. He wants to build three equal tabernacles, and he still wants to bypass the suffering that Jesus said that he must endure to redeem fallen man. This is why Luke interjects, Peter doesn't know what he's saying. What we must see is that Jesus is, in fact, not equal to Moses, not equal to Elijah or any other prophet or person who has ever lived. Jesus is totally and utterly unique and superior to all. Moses and Elijah are here because they were mere steps in the redemptive plan. They moved it forward little by little. But who were they pointing to? Who were they expecting What were they waiting for? What was all of the Old Testament looking forward to? To the Messiah, to the Christ. And he is infinitely more than they ever expected. He is the center of redemptive history. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the very center of history itself. Everything that came before his incarnation was pointing to the incarnation, and everything since the cross and resurrection flows from the cross and the resurrection. 
all of history, all of the history of the universe centers on Jesus. He is the very point and purpose of all things. Don't you see? When I say that Jesus is everything, do you know what I mean? That Jesus is everything. He is all. As the sun is the center of our galaxy, Jesus is the center of all galaxies. But even that comparison fails because the sun is like a match compared to the splendor of this glorious king. There's no rival to his glory. There's no equal to his splendor. There is nothing and no one as beautiful and glorious and holy as this Jesus who stood on this mountain on this day and was shown to be radiantly magnificent, for indeed there stood before him, them creator God himself. Take it on flesh to rescue wayward humanity. He did not outsource his rescue mission. He took it on himself. Does that not leave you flat? T.F. Torrance said it thusly. He said, there is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus, no act of God other than the act of Jesus, no God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God. The very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind. The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. All things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death are the same. And no sooner (laughs) than Peter put his foot in his mouth did the cloud of the divine show up and envelop Peter and the sons of Zebedee to quickly speak and correct their muscles and understanding of Jesus and his uniqueness. Here we see, Peter says, you are equal, let's build three equals tents, and then here comes this cloud in verses 34 and 35 descending, and we're meant to picture the same cloud that led the Israelites in the wilderness, the same cloud that filled the tabernacle and temples, the same cloud that stood atop Mount Sinai, and out of it speaks the voice of the Father who clears up any and all confusion by proclaiming, as he did at Jesus' baptism, this is my son. My chosen one. Listen to him. In effect, the voice is saying, Jesus is not equal to Moses. He's not equal to Elijah. He is greater than they, for he is my one and only son, my one and only word, my one and only chosen king. The Father is saying, you don't need to build tabernacles on this mountain. Because Jesus himself, as John 1 says, is the word made flesh that tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You don't need a tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. He's the incarnation of the glory of God himself. He's not only greater than Elijah and Moses, he is wholly other. Friend, this is where we must begin in our thoughts about Jesus. We are being invited into the scene to realize that Jesus is the Holy One of God, who radiates light from within himself, for he is creator God, the same God, I need you to get this, who spoke and created, who appeared in a burning bush, who parted the Red Sea, who appeared on Sinai, who filled tabernacles and temples, who walks and the nations tremble, who speaks and mountains quake who shoots lightning from his hand like arrows, who causes sea to roar, who names all the stars, moves planets, who all of creation delights to praise, that God is standing before Peter that day and being declared to be the Holy One who must be listened to. We have to start there with Jesus. 
because we're too tempted to tame him. We're too tempted to domesticate him and relegate him to second place. We're too tempted to make him our cosmic buddy or pal or genie in the bottle or malleable build-a-bear deity or divine Plato whom we can fashion and form at our whims. We're too prone to make him a non-offensive hippie who wants everyone to just be nice to one another. We must not come and say, well, I think Jesus is like this. I prefer to think of him like that. My Jesus wouldn't do or say this. We must see him for who he is on his terms. And who he is is greater than anything you could ever dream of. This is important because you will never truly grasp or appreciate or be wrecked by what Jesus has done until you are in awe of who he is. But now what does... Jesus, as revealed here, have to do with you? Well, if Jesus is revealed as the center point of redemptive history, if he's the center point of human history, if he's the center point of the universe, if all of history is bending towards his ultimate revealing of this kingdom and fullness, that he must be the center of your lives too. Picture again the sun in our universe. It shines bright. Everything in the universe or- orbits it, Yes. It radiates light, illumines what it touches. All of life is dependent on it, for without, it, without its heat, we would become popsicles. And without its light, we would wither away. The glory of Christ, as revealed in Scripture, is brighter than a trillion suns. And if you give him your allegiance, if you claim him as Savior and King, he must be the central motivating point in your life. He must be your source and your motive and your goal and your hope. Like the way light shines through stained glass, you must see all things through him and allow him to inform how you live in all things, from your work to your relationships to your leisure to your words, the way you see the world. He must inform everything about how you live. And the more you thus are intentional about making him your center, the more central he'll become. I think of one of my, my most absolute favorite scenes. I know I share a lot of scenes with you from Chronicles of Narnia and, and Lord of the Rings and things like this. This is my absolute favorite scene from Chronicles of Narnia. It's in the book Prince Caspian. And the great lion, Aslan, you know, he's the Christ figure. He shows up, and Lewis writes, and, and then, oh joy, for he was here, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with this huge black shadow underneath him. And when one of the girls, Lucy, sees him, she goes running up to him. And the next thing she knew, that she was kissing him, putting her arms as far around his neck as she could, burying his face in his mane. And then she steps back, and she looks at Aslan and says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that's because you're older, little one. And she says, not because you are. And Aslan replies, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. So it is with us. The more we behold Christ, the more we put him where he belongs at the center of our lives, the more we will grow, he will grow in our hearts and minds and eyes. Can I ask, friend, is he the center for you? I wonder, do you see everything through him? Does your life revolve around him? Does he inform all that you do and all that you are? Some of you are orbiting other things besides him. Some of you have placed something or someone else in the place that Christ should occupy. Some of you are centering your lives on your spouse, 
or your kids or your career or your reputation or your hobbies or your bank account or your legacy. Some of you are like a moon orbiting another planet, centering your life on something else with a vague attachment to the sun. Would we be content being marginal, cultural Christians who simply throw Jesus in when we get a chance? When you've seen the Christ and the transfiguration, do you think that is an option? Cease such things. Behold his splendor again and reorient your life. But this, you know, this also means that we must center the church on Jesus. He can't be an additive to whatever else we have going on. He can't be a means to some other end. He must be the point and the purpose or we lose our reason to exist. The glorious Lord cannot be relegated to the edges of the church. He must not be a secondary motivation or a later addition to our likes and preferences and desires. He must be everything. Too many churches use up their zeal and their passions on their preferences, and Jesus is never factored in at all. You know, it's not their starting point motivation. He's hardly even considered. Let this never again be said of First Baptist Cordial. He's too glorious, and we're too finite to presume ownership over something that Jesus founded and is head of. What do we want FBC to be known for? You know, some churches are known for their music, right? Some, some churches are known for their worship experience, whatever that means. Some are known for their litany of programs and activities and full calendars. Some are known for their attractionalism. Some are known for just fighting all the time over silly things that don't matter. Some are known for activism. Some are known for their culture warring. What do we want FBC to be known for? Should not be known for the centrality of Christ among us, for our pointing all to him, for him to not be something we add to our preferences, but truly being the center and point and purpose of all that we do, not just in word, but in deed too. That will seem weird in a culture like ours, but why would we make anything else but Jesus our focus and his centrality what we're known for? This means that both our personal lives and our church must be obedient to what Jesus said. What did the Father command in the midst of the cloud in verse 35? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Do what he says. Obey his precepts. And Moses prophesied this very thing in Deuteronomy 18, saying, The Lord, our God, will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you. You shall listen to him. This means we don't have to guess, have to theorize, or imagine what Jesus calls us to do. We have his word. And his word must inform how we live and what we do as a church. We go awry both in our lives and in the church, when our fallen hearts become the loudest voices we hear and obey. But on the other hand, if we strive to obey the Lord, no matter how uncomfortable it might be at times, we cannot fail. Friend, I wonder, do you listen to Jesus' word? Do you give yourself a way to learning what Jesus commands? And do you thus obey? Yet you can't obey Christ unless you know what he said which means you must make the word of God a priority. Do you, my friend, make the word a priority? I saw a video many years ago that I was reminded of this week. You can look it up on YouTube when you get home. 
It's of a church in a persecuted country. And they got Bibles in their native tongue for the first time. And you see them rush. They just run to this bag that contains the Bible. And they grab one each and they hug it. They, some of them smell it. Some of them are weeping. And their joy is unmatched because they can finally read Jesus' word. Is that how you approach the word? Do you have that kind of love for it? Do you see coming to these Lord Day gatherings and sitting under the preach and proclaim word as a necessary part of your walk in obedience? Do you read it every day? Do you submit yourself to the word? We must, if we are to be obedient, God himself calls from the cloud. Do what Jesus says. And we can only do what Jesus says if we know what Jesus said. Give yourself away to the word. Listen to Jesus and then follow in spirit, power, and obedience. He alone has the word of life. But we must continue. Point number two. What Jesus will do. What Jesus will do. Again, just as this scene is a fuller picture of the question, who is Jesus, is also a full expression of his statements about his own sufferings and ours that follow the proclamation of him as the Christ. This time it's less explicit. See again verse 30. Think of all the things that Jesus and Moses and Elijah could have been talking about. And then see what they were actually talking about. They're talking about Jesus' what? Departure, which was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The word departure, I told you, is the Greek word exodus, signaling that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that looms large is a truer and better exodus to free those that are captive to sin and death. N.T. Wright says it this way, Jesus himself then went through the mountaintop experience knowing that it was preparing him to follow where the law and the prophets had pointed, down into the valley, to the place of despair and death, to the place where demons shriek and sufferers weep, the place where the Son of Man will be handed over to sinners. The disciples were overwhelmed by the transfiguration and blurted out things they didn't mean. They were unable to understand how it was that the glory which they had glimpsed on the mountain, the glory of God's chosen Son, the servant who was carrying in himself the promise of redemption, would finally be unveiled on a very different hill, an ugly little hill outside Jerusalem. Jesus' face, you understand, is set like a flint towards Jerusalem and towards a cross and towards his death in the place of sinners. His exodus includes, like the first one, a spotless lamb being slain on Passover, but the spotless lamb is himself. His exodus leads the captive like fire and cloud. His exodus includes a mountain, but it isn't Sinai. It's the place of the skull. His exodus includes going into a new kingdom flowing with milk and honey, but that won't come until the end of the age. His is a greater exodus because he is a greater Moses. Now understand he doesn't come to simply free captives from physical bonds of an evil tyrant, but an even greater enemy, Satan and sin and death. He intends to release the chains of those who are captive to sin. He alone can provide such freedom because he alone dies in the place of sinners, effectively defeating sin and the greatest enemy of all, death. But we must see this too. Look what happens in verse 37. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He descends the mountain of transfiguration. He goes from the high places of radiant glory to the broken world of the crowds. Have you ever had a, what they call a mountaintop experience before? Have you had one of those? 
like an experience where you felt like you were on top of the world or, or you thought it doesn't get much better than this. Have you ever had that before? Maybe a trip you took or a beautiful place in creation that you went to or an event you went to or maybe something as simple as just quality time with your family where you sort of soaked it in and thought about how blessed you were. But then you have experiences where you left those mountaintop experiences and real life kind of smacked you in the face. You've had those? You have a great vacation, but then the car breaks down on your way back. You're able to leave all your anxieties behind, go on this trip and relax, then you got home and reality set in again. And everything you were anxious about before the trip has returned and demanded your attention. Has that happened to you? I bet it has. Jesus and three of his disciples go from this mountaintop of seeing the kingdom of the glory of Christ's bright radiance to the dark portion that Raphael painted of anxiety and confusion and panic and sin and troubles. Reminds us that life isn't made up of an uninterrupted series of mountaintop experiences, even if we wish that were the case. But rather, life is actually just filled with the mundane and series of valleys. From this scene, we are to see that for those found in Christ take comfort, Jesus has been there too. And he promises his presence with and for you in both the highs and lows of life in a fallen world. He went from the high peaks to the low valleys just like you do. You must see what Luke is doing here. The same Jesus who is just saw at the top of the mountain transfigured with all the biggest heroes of the Old Testament, the one who has his own light, radiates splendor, who shines with holiness from himself, is the same Jesus who came down from the mountain to touch the lives of regular fallen, struggling people. The same creator of all things descended the mountain of glory for the sake of the weak and the needy and the hurting. Does that not astound you? How can we ever get over that? Why wouldn't we make him the center of our lives in church? Are you getting this, guys? Are you not astounded by this? Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he's met by these crowds. There's this man. He breaks his way through, gets to Jesus. He begs Jesus, heal my son. He's my only son. This demon has, has entered him, and he caused him to cry out and foam at the mouth, and he won't leave him. I, I went to your disciples, but they couldn't help. They failed. And then Jesus quotes Moses and proclaims the people a faithless crooked generation. And he tells us, the father, bring your son to me. And while the boy approached demon tried one last-ditch effort, threw him on the ground. Jesus rebuked him. The unclean spirit left, and the boy was healed. And then Jesus gave the boy back to his father. This scene is like an illustration of what Jesus' exodus will be about. We're told that Jesus is talking about what he must do in Jerusalem with Elijah and Moses, and then he comes down the mountain, and here's a young boy who's captive to Satan through no fault of his own. But with this exorcism, we see that Jesus has come to overcome those forces that stand opposed to humanity and seek to bind them. We see cruel forces of evil. Isn't this cruel? See, in Matthew and Mark's account, they add that the boy was epileptic. So the demonic has possessed a young boy who already struggles with seizures. The demon took this poor boy's weakness and they used it to hurt him. Matthew says the demons would cause him to fall into fire and water. 
They're brutal and cruel, and Jesus hates that, which is why he's upset in verse 41 at this generation so faithless. But see, the demons recognize Jesus, don't they? And this is why it tries one last thing to hurt the boy. By throwing him down as he approaches the Lord, the demons are afraid of Jesus which is what we've seen over and over again when they encounter him. The demonic knows their days are numbered, and because of that, they will do what they can to hurt people. But Jesus is showing us, both on the mountain and here down below, that he has come to suffer and die so that he could put an ultimate end to our suffering and our dying. Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. He said, it's good we're here. Let me build three tabernacles. We'll hang out here forever. Luke says he's no clue what he's talking about. And Jesus doesn't listen to Peter's bad advice because Jesus knows he's under divine imperative to descend from the mountain so that he can heal people. He comes down from the lofty glory of the mountain so that he can voluntarily kneel down in the muck with sinners and the marginalized and the oppressed because he has compassion on them. And their plight, he touches real hurting people because he loathes what sin and death have done to them. And he intends to do something about it. He intends to reverse the curse via his own death and his own suffering. Friend, see how this picture that goes from transfiguration to healing a little boy is a picture of what Jesus has done in coming down from heaven and taking on flesh and living a perfect life and touching real people and marching towards Jerusalem knowing full well that what awaits him is rejection and flogging and a cross and a cup of wrath and a kangaroo court and mocking jeers from people he created and shame and nakedness and substitution in the place of wayward rebels and enemies of God await him. And he went anyway. In fact, this is why he came. So that he could get to you and unloose your chains. What does this mean for you? You know what it means? Everything. Friend, I want you to see yourself in this desperate father and his only son. See yourself crying out to Jesus, begging for help. See yourself as someone who is desperately needy and afraid. See yourself as a hapless disciple who get it wrong sometimes and don't have enough faith sometimes. See yourself at the bottom of the mountain in that dark space where frustration and anxiety linger. See yourself in the part of the picture where sin binds you and death scares you, but then would you look up toward the mountain? Because you know what you'll see if you do. You'll see a God of resplendent glory who is the center of all things and is perfect in majesty and holiness. And then he sees that, he speaks to you, But he doesn't say, hey, you got yourself into this. Get yourself out. And when you do, let's see if you climb this mountain to glory. He doesn't say that. The world says that. Jesus doesn't say that because he knows you could never climb the mountain to glory on your own. You know what he did instead? The same majestic, holy, perfect, just, wise God who literally shines because of how awesome his glory is like a trillion suns walks down the mountain. He doesn't look at you and your sin and misery and frustration and says, come up here if you can. He says instead, you did get yourself into this, but I'm going to get you out. Through my descending down the mountain, my dying in your place, my resurrection to new life. Don't you see? You you, you couldn't climb up, so Jesus climbed down. 
And while we were trying to climb a ladder to heaven through our deeds and morality, Jesus comes down, bypasses the ladder, and kicks that thing over and says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and I came to provide the way. In fact, I am that way. So, dear friend, when you're hurting and confused and depressed, you feel alone, and when you feel like there's no way out of what you're stuck into, you must remember that the Jesus of the transfiguration cares about your plight. When things are dark, and when you have this mountaintop moments, and then you come back to reality, and you thought life would just be a series of mountaintop moments, but those are actually few and far between. And when one bad thing happens after another, after another, it's almost unbelievable. When you're bound by sin, you just can't kick it and gain victory. You must remember again both the glorious Jesus of this mountain and the Jesus of the mountain in Jerusalem that bore your sins on his broken body. As you look to him through pain or through tears or through fears, his glory thus envelops you like the cloud did to these three disciples. And it would never depart. Friend, he cares about your plight. If he didn't, he would never descend from the heavenlies or from the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, there's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian and Hopeful are taken to the top of Mount Clear, and it offers an unobstructed view to the celestial city where they're heading. The pilgrims see only briefly and only dimly through glass, but they do catch a glimpse of their future home, of the place that their hopes rest in. While you fast forward way towards the end of the story, and they run into all these characters and all these troubles, all these toils and snares, and they get to a point where Christian starts to wonder if the celestial city ever existed at all. He's despairing because of the difficulties of life that he faced traversing a fallen world. Have you ever been there? You know what Helpful says to Christian? He says, did we not see the celestial city from the top of Mount Clear? Helpful reminds Christians simply of the glory that they beheld and that its existence and its beauty and its arrival is not contingent on the troubles and pains of life. You need this lesson. And I need this lesson too. The Christ of glory cares about your pain. Why else would he empty himself and in humility descend the mountain of splendor only to climb up the mountain of shame on the cross? As he peeled back the curtain of the kingdom, showed Peter and James and John the future glory that await those found in Christ, Jesus is showing that what, whatever pain or struggle or hurt you go through in this life, if you make him your center, what awaits you is healing and vindication. His disciples were given a glimpse of glory on that mountain because Jesus wanted them to remember what they saw and could thus survive the suffering they would endure in Christ's name. And so that you could too. See, what we want, what we've come to expect, is a life full of mountaintop moments. We expect, and we've been sold by the world, that life is just a long street party that occasionally gets interrupted by a hiccup here and there. But it's nothing we can't handle, right? Even charlatan prosperity preachers promise such things as if it's the normal Christian experience. Now, this, is, this text is so important. And why this text we looked at last week from 23 to 26 sounds so foreign to our ears. It's why the call to die daily and take up a cross and deny ourselves makes us uncomfortable. 
that causes us to say, that can't be right. But what Jesus says is that if you are to follow me, your life will not be a string of mountaintop moments interrupted by abnormal denial and crosses, but that it will be the exact reverse. That denial and pain happen now, but vindication and healing will come later. We say, why should I deny myself? And Jesus says, because if you deny yourself now, you'll glory later. Life will be hard now, but I'm with you. Dying is hard, but I did it before you and for you. He says, in this world, you will have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And there is a world to come where you will realize that the glory you will experience will be worth all the suffering now. We're about to see the transfiguration as a preview of Jesus' death. Whereas the transfiguration was a private epiphany, Calvary's Hill will be a public spectacle. Where there was light on the top of the mountain, there will be darkness as Jesus hangs on the cross. Where he was glorified, then he will be humiliated. Where Jesus was flanked by Elijah and Moses on his right and his left, he will be flanked by two criminals on crosses on his right and his left. Where his glorious flesh was illumined, it will be scarred and torn where his brilliant glow is replaced by shameful nakedness, where the father proclaimed, this is my son, a Roman soldier sees Jesus dying on the cross and declared, he really is the son of God. And when you see all of that, then you will see that the glory of Christ will outshine every rival idol in your life. And his glory will outshine whatever suffering you will face. Look to Jesus of both the transfiguration and of the valley, and of the place of the skull, and be ruined anew by his beauty, love, victory, and glory.